Welcome to Building Safe Workplaces, casual talk about serious matters. I'm your host, Tommy Nip with Hask, and today you'll hear one of our recent webinars centered around COVID-19. Enjoy. Well, good morning to everybody joining us this morning. Um, it looks like we're going to have a, a big group today on this uh, very important topic today on COVID-19 and the flu. Uh, welcome back for those that have joined us before. We've done a whole series of these. If you have not uh, participated, and we started several months ago just on hot topics that uh, we know would be at the forefront of people's questions. So we try to get ahead of that and, and answer as many things as we can. We've had a, a great group of experts on these webinars. So we definitely thank all of our, our subject matter experts that have participated, especially through the University of Texas. Uh, we certainly could not have done this without you. Uh, a special thanks to Michelle McDaniel with UT and Jordan Huggins with, with HASC uh, for helping us coordinate all this and wrangling all of these subject matter experts. Sometimes that's not easy to do, but uh, but we thank you for being here. We think this is going to be an enlightening topic and one that uh, is, is important throughout this pandemic and especially this fall season as we're approaching. So again, thanks to everybody for joining us here. I'm going to Start clicking through our slides here. If you joined us before, you know the you know the 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 process. There's a question box on your screen. Uh, we cannot hear you, so if you're chatting away, uh, we can't hear a word you're saying. If you want to talk to us or ask questions, just type it into that uh, uh, question box there. We can see those in real time, and we're going to answer all of those that that we can. And Believe me, we don't like just sitting here and, and, and talking and showing slides. We uh, we feed off your engagement and, and your questions. So please just feel free to shoot them to us. You can start shooting those questions now and we're gonna go through them as we're going through the, the session. And then at the very end, that's when we really dive into those questions. So again, thanks for being here. Uh, the webinar series have been brought to you by uh, HASC, the Houston Area Safety Council and the UT School of Public Health. Those Two entities are here to provide education, to provide safe workplaces, and to change the culture of, of health. So these are geared towards you, the employer, to the uh, employee, to the workforce, to make sure that you have all of the latest and greatest education and data and science out there throughout this pandemic to make good choices for your workplace. Thank you to our HASC sponsors. We could not do this without your generous support. Thank you to all of the donors uh, and, and supporters of, of the School of Public Health. I know they greatly appreciate it. We greatly appreciate it and we, we value those relationships. So just a few graphs, you know, we, we really tried this time not to put in a whole bunch of scientific graphs and charts. I think everybody's inundated with that stuff and, and keeps track of those things on the news. But just to give you a snapshot, of how the U.S. as a whole is doing with with daily cases. Here's the here's the graph of U.S. new daily cases. You can see it's up and down throughout the throughout this pandemic. We are on the on the downturn. Hopefully, a long-term downturn. You can see at the very end there over the past couple of a week or so, we have seen that little bit of a spike. We're hoping that that's going to level off and go down. We're hoping that that's just maybe from Labor Day, people had a good time and we see that increase and hopefully it shoots back down. What we don't want to see is, you know, you can see the July 1st uh, uh, 
trend. We don't want to see that big spike again. And we're hoping that doesn't happen throughout this fall season, uh, which is why we're going to talk about that today. Positivity rate, this is the, the number of people testing positive that have had a test. And you can see that we're doing a pretty good job with that. It's gone down to around 5% up from a high of you know 20% when this when this first kicked off way back in April. So that has a lot to do with <clears throat> the social distancing, the facial covering, you know, we're we're getting it now, I think, and we're doing what we can and 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 that translates into into good numbers there. I'm gonna pass it over to George to talk about this. Yeah. Go ahead. Can we go back to the previous slide for a second? Yeah. So what's important here is the positivity rate for the country as a whole. That's an average value is getting better and better, but that doesn't mean that there aren't states that are um, not higher than that. There, in fact, there are many states now that are still well above the desired 5% or lower positivity rate. So we need to take in, uh, into account that when we're looking at U.S. numbers, there's a lot um, there's a lot of noise around those numbers because of variation from state to state. Um, I don't know what it is for Texas uh, today, but it had been getting closer and closer to the 5% uh, yeah. Uh, rate as of about a week ago. So that's a good sign, at least for Texas. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I, when I checked the positivity rate for Texas yesterday, it was around 6.8%. So right. getting much better. Okay. So a little bit about uh, flu and, and uh, Tommy's going to talk about the characteristics of flu. But one point I want to make with this slide is that, and the reason for this webinar is that uh, every year we have flu season. Uh, it is fairly predictable, although there have been some exceptions uh, historically. Um, and what you see here are uh, several years worth of flu seasons, one on top of the other. And it shows um, that it's a fairly consistent period of time when the flu appears. So this is from the CDC. And what we have uh, down the numbers below from 40 uh, all the way to 38, in, in, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> 40 to 52, and then it starts over again. These are weeks of the year. So the first week in January is week one, the second week is week two, et cetera. And you'll see that typically we start seeing flu activity in the US beginning about um, weeks 40 to 44. So that puts us in uh, October, uh, early November. Uh, that's And then it starts peaking um around uh, the beginning of the year uh, in january and then it lasts for about two to three months after that before it starts going down it's important to remember that this uh, to remember this pattern because it does have implications when we later talk about the flu vaccination and the possible collision of uh flu and covid this year so uh, right now uh, you probably heard that we are encouraging flu shots already even though there are no cases really in the uh, in the community just yet. We want to vaccinate ahead of time uh, uh, before we start seeing the numbers appear in the community. So that's all I wanted to say about this slide, and then we'll talk a little bit more about it later. Well, let's jump in a little bit to, to talk about, well, what are, these, what are the similarities of these two viruses? Because they're, as you're going to see, they're extremely similar. Uh, the, the similarities greatly outweigh the differences when it comes to these two viruses, which, which is a problem. So how contagious are these two viruses? Let's, when we look at them, we, at any contagious disease, we look at how many people is an infected person going to spread it to on average? So we have that number, it's called a, an R-naught, a reproductive number. 
So for the flu, for any one person that has the flu, the chances that they're gonna spread it, they're gonna spread it to about 1.3 people, more people on average. When you compare that to COVID-19, it has a reproductive rate of around two. Okay, so from 1.3 to two. So some people, you know, glass half full or glass half empty, you could say, well, that's not too, that's not too much more contagious than the flu is. Some people may say, you know, that that's almost double what the flu is. So it depends on how you want to look at it. It is greater than the flu. Uh, but as you can see, when you compare it to other contagious diseases like measles, if somebody gets the measles, they're likely to pass it to 18 people. So greatly less uh, contagiousness than the measles, but still higher than the flu when we're talking about COVID. When you look at something historical like the H1N1 uh, 2009, 2009 um, uh, spread, that had about a 1.5 uh, reproduction rate. So when you, you know, you can, it's good to know these rates to see, well, how contagious is this virus? You know, when, when COVID-19 was first spreading, you know, February, March, we had no clue what that R number was. We thought it could be up to four. You know, we, uh, we thought it was a lot more deadly than it was. We just we just didn't know and we're still learning. But I think we 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 have a better understanding now and you can see that that reproduction rate of COVID is, is around two. For the flu, it's around 1.3. George, did you wanna add anything to that? Yeah, uh, so, so these reproduction numbers are, uh, reflect the likelihood of passing it on to more than, to, to other people when you take no protective measures because these numbers can be affected we can make them lower than they are and in fact we are starting to do that with covid um the current uh, reproduction number for covid in texas well, yes in texas is below one so which is great that means that there are fewer infections being transmitted in the community we're still not where we want to be but by reducing it um, to below one, then it makes it less likely that even one person with COVID will spread it to another. But that's done by through adherence to the, 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 the safety practices that you've all been hearing about every single day. Universal masking, social distancing, avoiding large uh, uh, gatherings, uh, good hand washing. That's how you can affect this baseline reproduction number rate number of two and lower it. And that's true for any disease. Excellent. So, you know, I, I did this one slide on just a snapshot, an introductory snapshot of how these things are, are similar. So they're both contagious respiratory viruses. You know, yes, can you touch something that's contaminated? Can you touch a doorknob and get the flu? Can you touch a doorknob and get COVID? Yeah, we think so, but, but definitely not the primary uh, source of, of contagiousness, right? It, it's a respiratory virus. You breathe in droplets uh to to get the virus more often than not both the flu and covid-19 share many of the same symptoms we're going to we're going to look at that and you're going to be shocked to see the similarities versus the differences both can be contagious before you even know you got it and that's what the scary part has been about covid is that you can be contagious and pass it and you don't even know you're sick and that's why people go and they feel great. They go to Aunt Sally's house to go visit her and, and the grandma and the family reunion and the birthday party. Nobody is aware that they're sick. There's no 
signs or symptoms. Nobody's coughing. Nobody's got a fever. Nobody's got body aches. And they spread it to everybody at the party because you can you can spread this thing before you even know you got it. Both can cause severe illnesses, uh, especially to those at higher risk, the elderly, uh, those with comorbidities. Uh, it, it, it can cause severe disease. It can cause death in, in both of those. So when we look at the actual symptoms of COVID-19 and the flu, you're going to see how great those similarities are. Both can cause a fever. If you've ever had the flu, you know you get a fever, right? COVID-19, one of the top signs and symptoms of, of COVID-19 is a fever. Cough, they're both respiratory viruses. Most likely you're going to get a cough or shortness of breath or feeling like you can't breathe. You're having difficulty breathing. Both make you tired. It just knocks you out. You feel fatigued. You feel tired. You don't want to get out of bed. Both can cause a sore throat. Both can cause runny or stuffy nose, muscle pain, body aches. Uh, I saw two uh, patients, both tested positive for COVID, and they both thought they had a back strain. Their, their back muscles hurt. Sometimes that's, that's all it is. Headache is another one. And some people have those GI symptoms. So th th this is your list of comparison between COVID-19 and the flu. Both can cause these. Well, what, what else can cause these? The common cold? Any other virus you can think of? Uh, what about strep throat, sore throat, headache, body aches, fatigue? There's a, a lot of these viruses and, and bacterial infections can cause a whole host of different things. So what we're seeing with the flu and COVID-19 is a lot of these symptoms are the same and they're indistinguishable. If somebody walked in and had all of these to, to see Dr. Delclose or myself, I can't look at you and tell what you got. Uh, I'd probably say, well, you either got COVID or you got the flu or you got the uh, cold or some other virus. That's when we have to go to our testing and try to figure out what's going on. All right, so this is, you know, this is us, right? I, I don't know, it, it could be a whole host of things because everything is so similar. So let's look at the, let's look at the, the list of, of features and signs and symptoms that can separate these. There's really only one, folks. That weird symptom of a loss or a change in taste and smell, for whatever reason, is a unique symptom to COVID-19. Who knows why? I'm sure there's some studies going on, or maybe there's some studies that have shown why we think that's possible. But this seems to be a unique symptom to COVID-19. So something to kind of be on the lookout for if, if you do have the whole laundry list of other symptoms, but you lost your taste or you lost your smell, may be an indicator that it, it, it's COVID-19. So let's look at some of the differences or similarities to, to, these, to these two viruses. So in the flu, a person can develop symptoms from one to four days after they've been infected. Okay, they, they, they went to see Aunt Sally and Sally didn't know she had the flu. One to four days later, you may start to experience signs or symptoms of the flu. It's pretty quick. It's got a, it's got a short little incubation period and before you're gonna show those signs and symptoms, one to four days. Let's compare that to COVID-19. We know that you typically will start to show signs and symptoms 
on the fifth day, five days later, but that can vary between two and 14 days. So a, a much wider time frame from when you become infected to when you start to show those signs and symptoms. This is why the, the guidance is out there. Well, if you think you've been exposed, you better hunker down for 14 days because it could be on the 14th day before you start to have a fever and cough and sore throat and, and, and those signs and symptoms of a, a, a much greater uh, span of, of showing those signs and symptoms from when you became exposed. Now, the problem with the flu or COVID-19 is a lot of the times you don't know when you were exposed. You don't know how you got that virus. So you don't know if you, if you were exposed yesterday or 14 days ago. So that's why we still say when you start showing those signs and symptoms, at least 10 days you need to, you need to hunker down because you could be contagious during that time frame. Let's look at the spread. You know, in flu and COVID-19, a person can be contagious even before they, they have signs or symptoms. That's, that's been the big issue, right? It's a big issue for the flu, but it's been a, a pressing issue for COVID-19 because you're gonna be walking around spreading that virus and not know that you have any, any virus at all floating in your body. This is why the facial coverings, the social distancing has been so important to try to squash the spreading of that virus because again, you're, you're, you're walking around spreading the virus without a cough, without a fever, without even know, knowing you have it. And the same holds true for the flu. You can, you can be contagious during that time frame and not have any signs or symptoms and going out to that family reunion or that birthday party spreading the flu to everybody. So they're very similar in that regard. Both flu and COVID, uh, a person can be contagious if they don't have any symptoms or very mild symptoms, just like we said. Again, facial covering, social distancing is important to, to keep those numbers down. In the flu, a person is most contagious during that first three to four days of having the having the uh, the illness, in up to seven days, right? So, so in general, the flu comes on quick after you've been exposed, and it goes away quick. You know, if you if you talk to anybody that has ever had the flu, they say it was the worst week of my life. But it's just a week. Typically, you're going to get the virus, you're going to get sick, it's going to go away within a within a week. You contrast that to COVID-19. And you can be contagious up to up to 10 days uh, after those symptoms first start. So, and again, Dr. Dr. Emery, who is usually on these uh, webinars with us, always likes to point out this is a novel virus, meaning it's new. We still don't know a lot about this virus, right? We think, uh, and we know more now, right? We've been through this now for almost you know six nine months. A person can be contagious at least 10 days after those symptoms start. That's why we say. You got symptoms, go home, stay by yourself, hunker down because it's a it's a wider uh, time frame of of being contagious than we than we know the flu is. George, did you want to add anything? Um, no. Uh, in in some people that have had COVID, uh, some people who uh, have a pre-existing um, disease that makes their uh, defenses be worse, that lowers their immune response, that contagiousness can last longer than 10 days. It may typically, about 95% of them are, are stop being contagious after day 15. But this is only in people that, uh, for what we know now, um, that have an underlying uh, immunosuppressive uh, disease. 
Um, so for those folks, we, we tend to return them to work. We wait a little bit longer than we wait for, for example, employees who have had COVID. And typically we'll start talking about getting them back to work as long as they're without a fever and they feel better after about day 10. But these other folks with uh, immune, uh, pre-existing immune conditions, uh, we may wait a little bit longer on them. You know, and, and just, to, just to point out, and I know George is going to talk about this a little later, but it, we, you know, it, don't get the impression that these things are mutually exclusive, right? That if they, if, if you got the flu and COVID, then, then all bets are off for, for this timeline, right? Uh, it could start early because you've got the flu. If you've also got COVID, it's going to, it could, it could last 14 days. So uh, these, these things certainly can be caught together and give you an even wider a variety of signs and symptoms, being contagious. Uh, uh, so just keep that in mind as we're talking about this. We, we try to separate them to show you the differences and the similarities, but if they're combined and they're together and you caught both, it, it, you, you have to keep that in mind. So you, treatments, I think we all are aware that Tamiflu is out there. There's there's other newer uh, antivirus antiviral treatment for the flu, but Tamiflu is the tried and true. It's 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 it. I believe it's generic now. I believe you can get it a little bit cheaper, but uh, you know that that helps to reduce the duration of the flu. It helps to reduce some of your symptoms. <clears throat> it's not a it's you know it doesn't make the flu go completely away. It it helps suppress the virus, which makes your symptoms get better faster. And that in that week of feeling miserable, lessen by a couple of days. Tommy, can I Tamiflu, yeah, Tamiflu is also useful for preventing the flu. If you are, if somebody in your family has the flu and it's clear-cut flu, um, there may be some value in you taking Tamiflu before you get the flu because it can, uh, it reduces your chances of getting it, even if you've been vaccinated. In COVID-19, you know, there, there are some, emerging treatment options out there you know most of these if not all are still being studied we still don't know everything there is to know about these things uh the convalescent plasma therapy that we all hear about that, that you know tom hanks has been a, a, a spokesman for because he's he's in one of those trials donating his plasma uh still being investigated i i would and george please jump on board uh with this discussion but i i think the jury's still out if if this is a really good treatment or, 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 or not with the, with the plasma therapy. Uh, remdesivir is one that we've all heard about on the news. It, it certainly is being studied, certainly trials going on. I know if you, you, know, if you go to a hospital here in Houston and you are in, in, in bad shape with COVID-19, there's a chance you may be uh, given remdesivir on, in one of those trials to see if it, if it helps you out. Uh, it, we think it may reduce severity, may reduce the duration uh, of that disease, but right now it's limited to those that are in, in critical condition in, in the hospital setting. Uh, steroids are, are something that are, are being recommended for uh, right now for severe disease. Again, there's several steroids that you can give. Uh, right now the guidance is, 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 is the steroids for severe cases in, in, in more of a hospital setting, but um, there, there's a lot of times, no harm in giving a, a simple steroid pack to somebody who's got a, the, you know, a cough or shortness of breath. Uh, the steroids are still a, a good option for those those cases as well. So vaccination. 
get a flu shot. <laughs> the flu shot has been a, a tried and true uh, prevention for for the, the the influenza every year. Uh, some years it's 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 better than others. Some years it's more effective than others. Um, get a flu shot. There's no reason not to get a flu shot. Uh, offer flu shots to your employees. Make it easy for them to get a flu shot. You saw the list of similarities between the flu and COVID. If you can prevent one of those completely, or you know, at least 50% of the time, why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you want to just get flu out of your mind? Okay, all my employees have been vaccinated. If somebody comes to me with with fever and cough and shortness of breath, it, it, it the chances that it's the flu are, are diminished. Well, we can try to focus in on COVID-19. So offer that to your employees. Make sure that it's available. You know, the flu shot is is still cheap. It's going to run you $30, $35, $40, most likely. There's no reason why you, you shouldn't get the flu. I, I realize that some people say, well, I got the flu three years ago. And I mean, I got the flu shot and I think it made me get the flu, which we know is is not the case. So So try to encourage your workers to get their flu shot. Uh, Dr. Del Close and I were chatting that that the that the the hospital that he works for in the in the medical center does a flu shot campaign, you know, make posters, uh, send out emails, encourage those workers to get the flu shot this year, especially this year, right? When we've got two major viruses potentially on a collision course, get the flu shot. I know there's some questions coming in about uh, the, the the different uh, varieties of flu shots this year, the dosing. So we'll definitely chat about that uh, a little bit later. <clears throat> so when we look at the COVID-19 vaccines, we're, we're almost there. It looks like we're almost there. Uh, several vaccination uh, and pharmaceutical companies are in their final stages of testing. Appears that a, a vaccine will be released by the end of the year uh, or approved by the end of the year and then start going into its mass production to to put out tens of millions of, of doses for everybody in the United States. Here's our current COVID vaccine tracker that I, I copied today from the New York Times. <clears throat> so you can see 26 uh, pharmaceutical companies or, or vaccines in, in phase one, 14 in phase two, and 10 in phase three. The limited ones you see in, uh, that are five are probably not ones that we're dealing with in this country. Russia came out with one. I think China it has come out with one. Those are not us, right? We're, we're, we're in the phase three at the best. So uh, I saw Johnson & Johnson is, is, uh, is going st full steam ahead in phase three, which looks promising, which is uh, I think they're looking at a one-dose vaccine, which is good. Some of the other ones are, 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 are at least two doses. So uh, Promising vaccines, it looks like it, uh, from everything that we know right now, looks like it's good efficacy. It looks like some of these are gonna, are gonna build strong immune responses with, uh, with few side effects, but they're, again, still have to finish out phase three to make sure that's all uh, under control. So I'm gonna pass this over now to George to, to talk a little bit about, well, what does this look like if these two viruses combine this year? What are we looking sure. at? So um, with respect to COVID uh, and the flu coming together, there's, um, there's good news and bad news. I'll start with the bad news. Um, one is a dreaded scenario. If we don't do things correctly, 
there is a possibility of a combined wave of both viruses hitting uh, the U.S. at a time that I think is, it's fair to characterize it as the worst public health crisis of our time. Uh, when, when we listen on TV and for comparisons, everybody goes back to the, um, to the Spanish flu, the swine flu, at the turn of the 20th century, the beginning of the 19, it was 1916 or 1917. But since then, I think it's fair to characterize what we are going through right now as the worst public health crisis of our time. And it can be made worse if we don't do a good job of anticipating um, what the effect, the combined effects of having to deal with both of these viral infections um, will be, and especially if we are lax with taking safety measures. Both viruses, uh, so Tommy talked about the, the presenting symptoms, but it's also important to, to uh, talk about the fact that both viruses, in some cases, can cause very severe disease and even death. It's not just COVID-19 that can cause death. Flu causes, uh, can cause uh, death and lots of hospitalizations particularly at risk of severe complications uh, from, um, from the flu, the groups are very similar to the high-risk groups from COVID. So we're talking about the elderly. We're talking about people with asthma or with heart disease or prior history of stroke, diabetes, maybe people with some immune suppressive conditions like HIV AIDS or even cancer that also can be associated with immune suppression. And then with the flu, there are some additional differences. So for example, children, very young children who get the flu are also at risk of getting severe disease and dying, especially children under the age of two. That's why we encourage all pregnant women to get flu shots. No questions, no need to get a, a doctor's release to get a flu shot. If you're pregnant, get a flu shot. Um, next. Um, so people ask, is it possible to have both infections at the same time? The answer is yes. We don't know how common it is, but we do know that it, it has been reported uh, in, in very good, what we call case studies, descriptions of specific patients who were tested for both. A lot of these cases uh, were described very early on, actually in, in March, April, coming out of China, which is what you'd expect since that was the first country to have the infection, so they can occur. And why is this important? Co-infection, if it does occur, um, is important because it may especially affect these most vulnerable folks and probably increase the chances of death greater than either of the two infections by themselves. I'm saying probably because we don't know that for sure, but it is um, a reasonable assumption. And so those vulnerable to either of the two infections stand to be affected most severely. But there's also some good news, which is going to be on the next slide because I forgot this last point. The other, let's, let's go back. Um, so uh, can we go back to the previous one? Yeah. So the other thing and the other reason to to get ahead of this uh, double pandemic or double double epidemic uh, is is because we've already seen what happens when our hospitals are overwhelmed by COVID. We saw it in New York. We saw it in several other states. We saw it around the world. If you add flu to the mix, you know, flu a uh, results in a lot of hospitalizations every year. And so if you've got two epidemics going on at the same time, that may stretch our hospital capacity again. And when hospital capacity is, um, is stretched, then that increases the likelihood of a bad outcome, not only for the patients, but also for the people taking care of those patients, because 
PPE, for example, will be in short supply again. And so we need to anticipate this so that our health system, our hospital system is able to, um, to, to meet the challenge, you know, to have enough surge capacity to deal with it. Now we'll go to the good news. So in the, in the good news, we do know that um, the same protective measures for COVID, universal masking, safe distancing, safe social distancing, um, avoiding crowds, good hand washing, are also good pre practices for preventing the flu. In fact, and I'm not saying this is going to happen in the US, I hope it does, but we've already seen that in countries that have, whose flu season has already come and gone, like Australia, typically countries in the Southern hemisphere of the world will get the flu, uh, well, their flu season comes before ours. Um, in Australia, they have noticed a drastic reduction in flu cases this year. And when I talk about drastic, I'm talking about 60, 70 or more percent reduction as compared to previous years, which is phenomenal. Now, it's also true that Australia is much stricter than we are on things like lockdowns, um, uh, you know, uh, penalties for, for not complying with masking uh, or social distancing, et cetera. So um, it's a good example, but uh, we would have to, uh, it would be ideal if we could reach that level of, of protection. But that's, that's good news. So we may in fact see a lower flu season. However, I don't want this to be misinterpreted because just because there's a chance that everything we're doing now to protect ourselves against COVID might have the benefit of reducing flu, that's not an excuse for not getting the flu shot, okay? Um, other good news is there is treatment for both infections. Tommy covered that very well. So for the flu, we have specific, well, we have preventive treatment, uh, but then the, the specific treatment when you have the disease, we have that for the flu, uh, Tamiflu, either when you have it or when you've been exposed to somebody who has it to prevent it. For COVID, even though a lot of the, the, the results are still pending, we do know some things such as the role of steroids in advanced disease, maybe even um, remdesivir in, in severe, but it's different for each. And in fact, I would say that um, one of the reasons to try and make sure that you can that we as clinicians can separate between the flu and COVID is that sometimes the treatment that is good for one may not be good for the other. So for example, typically in the flu, we don't give steroids. There are exceptions to that. If you have an asthma and the flu causes a bad asthma attack, we will give you steroids in those cases. But typically it's not part of the treatment for flu. It is part of the treatment for COVID-19, at least in moderate to severe cases with respiratory diseases. Um, we do know that the flu vaccination is, is effective. It's given every year. It changes every year. This year's vaccination is, um, is targeting four different strains of the flu virus. And so the, the type of vaccine that is being recommended by CDC is what's called a quadrivalent vaccine. That means it's got protection against all four. Um, and as the, Dr. Heisler said, you know, there are promising vaccines for the other, uh, for, for COVID as well. However, I think it's probably safe to assume that neither vaccine is going to be 100% effective. There are very, very few vaccines for any disease in the world that are close, that, that are 100% effective. Some are very close, like measles, like polio, but the majority uh, are not uh, at 100%. So for example, your typical flu vaccine may be effective in up to about 70% of cases. Last year's flu vaccine was not very good. 
it was as low as around 40, 45%. Still, it's better than zero, but it was not as effective as in other years. We think this year's vac uh, flu vaccine, the quadrivalent, is going to be more effective, but we won't know until, obviously, flu season is here. That's still not a reason not to get it, because if you have a vaccine that's 70% effective, that's a lot of protection. And the same thing with COVID. You know, we don't know if it'll be 50% effective, 70% effective, 80% effective, uh, which also brings up another point that because the, neither of these vaccines is 100% effective, I don't see that we're going to be relaxing masking and social distancing and the other safe practices anytime soon, even if we have the vaccines available. Um, and when we do have those vaccines for COVID, and now that we have the flu shot, I'm a big advocate of mass population vaccination. We can't require it in the US, but when this becomes available, just in the same way that we encourage flu vaccination in the entire population greater than six months of age, um, we're going to be doing the same thing, I hope, for COVID, because the greater the percentage of the population that is vaccinated, the more likely we are to get close to that desired herd immunity that we've talked about in other webinars. All right, so that looks like the end of our formal discussion on, on the, the flu and COVID-19. George, I know there was a question written in by one of our, our colleagues from uh, UT Tyler uh, asking about the, the, the different doses of the flu vaccine. You wanna talk about that, right. the, the, the super dose or the senior dose or you know those the more powerful ones. I think I saw the name Jeff roll by. Yeah. yeah. Hi Jeff, hi Dr. Levine. Good to hear from you. Yes, yeah, so um, there are uh, there are the vaccines that we have uh, for flu this year fall into different categories. There are still some that only protect against three of the four viruses. CDC is strongly recommending that uh, that we protect against all four strains of the flu virus. Um, there is also one that is more potent. It's called a high dose flu vaccination. And typically, that is, the use of that is limited to people 65 years of age or older. And then we have a, a nasal vaccine that uh, is also on the list of uh, acceptable vaccinations uh, uh, listed by CDC, although it tends to be given less. So let me address the high-dose vaccine for people 65 and older versus the standard quadrivalent uh, flu uh, shot that is being recommended this year. CDC does not... Um, express a preference for either the high dose or the standard dose. They say both are acceptable. If you go to their website, they do talk, uh, they do present some data on a few studies that have looked at the effectiveness of high dose flu shots in people 65 and older, and there does seem to be some benefit. Apparently it's not enough benefit for CDC to recommend it over uh, the standard dose vaccine. So it puts it in the, and it, they're very clear that they don't recommend one over the other, but they present the data to you. So, you know, uh, it's certainly understandable that people over 65 um, would prefer to have the high dose vaccine. I can tell you because we're also in the midst of our flu vaccinations here in the Texas, uh, our flu campaign uh, in the Texas Medical Center, that it is increasingly difficult to get. In fact, we have not been able to get it this year. I think some of the pharmacy chains like CVS or Wal uh, Walgreens may be offering it. And if you do that, that that's your choice. Uh, and, and it's okay, it's fine. It's a perfectly fine choice if you're 65 or older, but don't be surprised if they don't have it. 
and it should not be a reason that the absence or the lack of availability of a high dose flu shot, if you're 65 or older, should not be a reason to not get the standard dose. Get whatever you can get your hands on that is recommended. Uh, along the same lines of, of uh, vaccinations, uh, there was a good question about the pneumonia vaccine. You want to chat briefly about who's, who is recommended to get the pneumonia vaccine and what, what specific uh, uh, disease, you know, uh, agent the pneumonia vaccine prevents? Right. So that, that, that's a good question uh, as well. So, um, well, first of all, the, the, the pneumonia just means an infection of the lung. There are viral pneumonias, pneumonias caused by viruses. COVID and flu both are good examples of, of viruses that are capable of producing pneumonia. And then there are pneumonias that are caused by bacteria. Bacteria are things that you give antibiotics for. You don't give antibiotics for viruses, but you do give them for bacteria. The, the pneumonia vaccine targets one of the most common types of, pneumonia, of bacterial pneumonia, specifically streptococcal, um, which is a bacterium. Um, uh, pneumonia. And there are two types of pneumonia vaccine. One uh, has been around for, gosh, now it's probably closer to 30 years, I'd say. It's called Pneumovax, and it protects against 23 different serotypes. If you want to call them strains, you can call them strains of the pneumococcus. Um, and uh, I think I said streptococcus before, but it's it's Actually, it is a, a streptococcus, but it's really the pneumococcal vaccination. Um, and then more recently, a separate vaccine called Prevnar 13 protects against an additional 13 serotypes. So who is it recommended to get the pneumonia vaccine? Unlike the flu shot, unlike uh, COVID vaccination when it comes around, it's not recommended for the entire population until they hit a certain age, which is 65. Or if you're younger than 65, but you have pre-existing heart or lung conditions, then um, you know diseases, then it's it's a good idea to get uh, these vaccinations. The full series involves getting both vaccinations, both shots, the Pneumovax and the and the Prevnar, separated by one year. Typically, if um, if you've never had the pneumococcal vaccination and you are a candidate for it, they will probably give you the Prevnar 13, the newer one first, and then 12 months later, they'll give you the Pneumovax. And after age 65, you only need to get one of each. It doesn't need to be repeated, unlike the flu shot, which needs to be repeated every year. Uh, it's good added protection. It does not protect against all types of pneumonia, just like the flu shot does not protect against all types of respiratory infections. It just protects against the flu. And the pneumococcal vaccine just protects against the pneumococcal pneumonia. But it's a good thing to have. It is covered by insurance. A lot of these insurance plans, because it's prevention, there's probably no copay, certainly under Medicare. That's likely to be the case. And I would encourage it if you meet the criteria. So, so no updated recommendations if you've had COVID pneumonia that you need a pneumonia vaccine. No, no relation to those. No, uh, I mean, it is still recommended. And in many hospitals, if you're sick enough to be admitted to the hospital, or if you're admitted electively to hospitals, a lot of hospitals will give it to you as you walk through the door if you haven't had it. Uh, a question was directed to me. Are there confirmed COVID-19 cases where individuals did not have that loss of taste and smell? Absolutely. You you certainly don't have to have everything on that list. Uh, I would I would uh, I would say that that loss of taste and smell is not one of the higher up 
symptoms on the list. You know, the, the higher up symptoms are going to be your fever and cough, uh, and, and loss of taste and smell is 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 down the list. But it it just happens to be a weird. One. Thirty thirty five percent. Yeah, yeah. So so abs. So they answer the question absolutely. You can have COVID nineteen and and never have loss of taste and smell. And remember, you can have COVID nineteen and have none of those symptoms on that on that list. You can be completely asymptomatic. Uh, so it's a good question. Uh, good, a good question, and you know, one of em emerging uh, importance and, and kind of changes daily. Uh, George, you want to talk a little bit about droplets versus aerosols, and and what we think is uh, is is spreading this virus? Sure. <laughs> so um, yeah, there's. Uh, it's understandable that there's a lot of confusion uh, about this, and it didn't. It certainly didn't help when last week CDC came out and said that airborne, uh, instead of droplet transmission, is the most common form of spread. And then a few days later, they, they retracted it and they said it's not the most common, but it is possible to get it uh, via the airborne route. So let, let's let's review droplet versus airborne. So droplet, we're talking about particles that are when you cough or you or you you know even if you, you breathe or you sneeze these large particles of uh, of uh, secretions um, that are too large to stay suspended in air for a long time they tend to fall to the ground and they fall within a distance of about six feet or less that's the whole rationale for social distancing being based on six feet or less I think most people will agree that for COVID this is still the main form of transmission, droplet transmission. That doesn't mean that there aren't other forms of transmission. So for example, we know that some surfaces can be contaminated with the virus. And if you touch a contaminated surface and then touch your nose or your mouth, um, or even your eyes probably, um, that you might acquire COVID. It is probably not anywhere near as common as droplet transmission. Airborne transmission is when, um, the, the particles that are released uh, are very, very tiny. And because they're tiny, they don't they, they tend to stay in air for a longer period of time. And they may, in fact, travel a longer distance, depending on a bunch of things. For example, if you sneeze or you're coughing or you are singing loudly in a choir or you're yelling, um, all of those things can increase the distance of travel of these airborne particulates. Other things that can affect it is the ventilation of the system that you are, uh, are in. So for example, if I uh, am coughing and I've got a fan behind me and you're in front of me, it'll probably take whatever comes out of my mouth and, and send it farther and you're at a greater risk. Or if you're in a, a, a room that does not exchange air with, replace you know, the, the existing air with fresh air at a uh, high enough frequency, that may uh, prolong the persistence of these particles in the air. So airborne transmission, we do know it occurs. Um, it is especially likely to occur in people who have unprotected sneezing, uh, who are singing loudly, who, um, you know, maybe shouting. Uh, all of those things uh, increase the likelihood. Um, why am I saying that still droplet is is probably the is 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 the main mode of transmission? because of what we're seeing with masks. Masks, I'm not talking about respirators, I'm talking about masks are not very good at preventing airborne transmission. 
at, at, at cutting it off. It, it'll cut it off to a certain degree, but not not uh, not very well. But it is very good at preventing droplet uh, droplet uh, transmission. So what we do know is that masking, when it's practiced correctly, results in a dramatic decrease in the likelihood of contagiousness. And because of that, you know, we think still that the main mode of transmission is droplet, but we don't rule out the other forms, airborne and, and surface. Yeah, I know there's been a lot of up and down about about that. And, you know, if you've ever watched the movie The Hot Zone, right? I mean, what, what, when do they freak out of the movie? When it's airborne, right? So I know that, you know, that that kind of, you know, scares scares people when they think, well, I can just be walking in the grocery store and these little particles are floating around and I'm going to breathe them in. But it, it, like George said, it doesn't look like that's the the main route of transmission, which is... Well, which it, is it scares some people, but it also, what I worry about even more... I'm less worried about people that are scared uh, about that because they're going to take more, more, uh, you know, precautions. I, I'm more worried about people who, who use that as a reason to not wear a mask. Oh, masks don't protect against airborne transmission. Hence, I won't wear a mask. No, that's not true. That's not true. Masks do protect uh, against the main mode of transmission, which is droplet. And we should all be using them. Uh, a question about the slides, or the slides going to be available? Absolutely. We record this session and we send it out to all of the attendees so you can watch it as many times if you want to. Let's see here. Uh, just like flu viruses differ from year to year, is there any difference? I, I assume related to COVID. Or do we think it's going to be a new strain every year that we're going to have to have a new vaccine? What do you think? Yeah, we don't know. <laughs> that little that, that that cartoon you showed. Yeah, we don't know. I mean, um, you know, some of the proteins appear to be pretty stable on the the proteins are, are what on the uh, are on the outer layer of this virus. Everybody's seen the little spikes. So there's something called the spike protein, but there's also the capsid and and, and other types of proteins. Um, most remember that if there's a lot of uh, mutations. The vaccines that we are, are developing now might not be useful, you know, and, and yet um, the, the, from what I've been reading, the ones that are being developed that are in phase three are targeting proteins that have been pretty consistent in this very short period of time that we are, have uh, come to meet COVID-19. As, as Dr. Heisler was saying, let's not forget it's a novel va virus. We're still learning and we can't talk about what it's going to be like the next, uh, you know, next year or two years down the line, because we're nowhere near there. We have a lot of, uh, of good, um, you know, data on what happens with the flu from decades of studying it. But we're still, folks, we're still nine months into this only to this new disease. A good question, one that I had actually thought about earlier was, you get a, if you get a COVID vaccine, a COVID vaccine comes out, you get it, and you get it with a flu shot as well. And, and I would imagine that they're doing some of those tests uh, as well. Uh, you know, with, with some of the different vaccines that, you, that we routinely get, the manufacturer will say, do not give this other vaccine if you're getting this vaccine. So I, I, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that, uh, but I would assume there's gonna be some, some testing done to make sure that there's no cross-contamination with other vaccines. I, 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 they'll certainly be studied, um, you know, the, the, the safety of giving them both. I can tell you, though, as a general rule with vaccinations, you know, vaccines are, are divided into two big groups. They're called inactivated vaccines. This is where you don't have a live virus. You're just targeting 
uh, the vaccine is really targeting a specific protein or something like that. And then you have live virus vaccines. The rule, general rule of thumb is you should never give two live virus vaccines together. But inactivated vaccines, you can generally combine them. Uh, flu shot, except for the nasal one, which is a live virus vaccine, but the, the, the regular flu shot that you get in your arm, that is an inactivated one. So it presumably can be given with another inactivator, and frankly, could even be given with another live one. There's no incompatibility if you give one live and one in, in, inactive. What you can't do is give two live viral vac virus vaccines together, typically. Well, and that, I think that's a good segue to another question that always gets asked, and, it, and it's been asked here too, Let's talk a little bit about the uh, the myth of I got it I got a flu shot and then I got the flu because of it, or I got the flu shot and I, then I felt miserable the next day and had a fever. What 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 do we know about about that relationship? Okay. So um, the most important thing for folks to uh, recommend uh, to remember is the flu shot does not give you the flu. You cannot catch the flu from the flu shot. Period. End of story. That doesn't mean that the flu shot will prevent other re viral respiratory illnesses. Uh, so flu shots are not going to prevent the common cold. They're not gonna prevent COVID. They're not gonna prevent other viral infections like respiratory syncytial virus and, and, and some of the other ones. They just protect against the flu. However, you can have a local reaction after getting a flu shot. It doesn't occur very often, but it can occur. So the day after, generally it appears within hours to the day after you receive the flu shot. Some people may have a local reaction. Their arm will swell up a little bit. They may even have a little bit of low-grade um, low-grade fever and, and possibly even some symptoms, but it is not the flu, okay? Um, this is also going to be important for the COVID vaccine because even though we, the, we, we are not 100% sure of the safety of the vaccines that are being studied right now, although the, it's promising, as, as Dr. Heisler was saying, um, in the earlier trials, the few adverse reactions to the flu that, actually to the COVID vaccine that were being experienced by volunteers, and these were healthy volunteers, some of them did get a couple of days of mild symptoms. That does not mean they got COVID. It means they had a reaction to the vaccine that lasted a day or two, and then they were fine after that. And in fact, they even showed evidence of protection. Uh, again, I wouldn't be surprised if the COVID vaccine, we start seeing some of the same questions that are arising with the flu, shot you know can i get the flu from the flu shot can i get covid from the covid vaccine vaccine so no you cannot get the flu from the flu shot you know and i think it's also important to to remind everybody that you know if i get a flu shot today i'm not protected today from the flu it may be days or weeks before i'm fully protected so i could go out and get exposed to the flu tomorrow and get the flu and 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 i, I think probably people relate that to, well, I, that must have been because I got the flu shot. The flu shot gave me the flu. Well, it's not. It, it may just be that you were in that gap of uh, before you were fully immune after getting that flu shot and you still got the flu. So that 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 certainly can happen as, as well. I, I think that brings, that's a segue into another question that is probably on the list, but it's, it's asked a lot, which is, okay, I want to get a flu shot. When should I get the flu shot? Isn't it better if I just wait until we're closer to the beginning of the flu season or when we it's already started? Um, so uh, if we were talking two months ago, uh, I would have told you don't get it in July or August. That's too soon. And that's consistent with what CDC recommends. However, beginning in September, people should start getting the, the flu shot. 
and they should certainly have it before the end of October of this year. Because of what you just said, Tommy, so it takes about two weeks to build up immunity or protection against the flu from a flu shot. If you wait until after the flu has already entered your community, we have definite cases of flu in the community, you know, you're, you're going to have a two-week risk period. And, and, and you saw that how sharp the, the peak was, the increase uh, uh, the seasonality of the flu on the slide that I showed earlier. It, you know, once it's in a community, it spreads like wildfire, typically. Hopefully this year it'll be different because of what we were talking about, the experience in Australia, but it will go up. And so if you wait too long to get the flu shot, you're going to be at risk a longer period of time than if you get it uh, sooner. Now, why are some people suggesting to, to wait longer or why do they think that waiting longer might help? Well, they say, well, we know that the flu shot loses its effectiveness after flu season is over. So why wouldn't I want to take it? when this flu season starts, and that way it'll last longer, and I'll make sure that it lasts the entire season. Well, first of all, most of the flu shots given in September and October will have lasting immunity well into the uh, end of the of the flu season. Uh, and then you don't want to start it late to get longer immunity if you're going to put yourself at a greater risk initially because you, you started, you took it uh, too late. Thanks, George. A good question about just, I think, our, our recommendation or is there a recommendation out there for, you know, what, what does an employer do when an employee calls in and says, I, I'm sick? I've got one or more of those symptoms on there. How do you determine whether or not they have the, the, the COVID virus or the, or the flu virus? Um, I'll tell you my, what I tell my, uh, my employers that call me is, you know, especially during this time, it's, it's COVID-19 until you prove otherwise. So I always recommend if you can get a test, go get a test, go get it, go get a COVID-19 test. There's, you know, we did a whole webinar on testing, so we're not going to get into that. Get a test for COVID-19. If it's negative, it can be that it's, it's a false negative. It could be that you're just not testing negative yet for that, for the COVID-19. Or it could mean that you truly don't have COVID-19 and, and maybe you've got the flu. So in that case, that, that's when you would maybe consider uh, running a flu test on that person and really trying to, you know, pinpoint what's going on with this person. I mean, regardless, if they're sick and they've got a fever and they're coughing and both tests are negative, you still don't want them at work, right? They still need to be home taking care of themselves. Uh, and then that's when you can have the discussion about should they test later or how long do they need to stay home? Is it the, the seven days if you think it's the flu? Is it the four, 14 days if you think it's COVID-19? But, you know, with, with the advancements of, of testing at our disposal now, there's no reason why that person should not go and get a test if they're, if they're sick. Uh, of course, that's an, in, that's an individual decision to make for that person. But uh, I recommend if an employee calls you and says, I've got a fever and I'm coughing, advise them to go get a, a COVID uh, test and or a flu test, depending on what, well, you know, how much you want to dig around. George, anything to add? Yeah, so step number one is exactly the thing. Anybody who has symptoms, stay at home. That's rule number one. Then rule number two, if you're going to test, go with COVID first, because that is um, the main thing that we're looking for. Whether or not to flu test, um, you know, some people ask, well, can't you just do both tests with the same specimen? The answer is yes, sometimes it depends. So um, the CDC has put out a new test that can simultaneously, based on one specimen, test for both COVID and the flu. 
that's great news. What's not so great news is that it's only distributed it to state health departments. So these are not available in commercial labs. They're not available in, um, you know, most clinics, uh, et cetera. Um, types of flu tests that we use in clinics, um, the, probably the one that y'all are most familiar with is what's called the rapid flu test. It's done in the clinic and in about 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes, uh, you have a result. Um, and that is helpful. It's, it's not as sensitive as other flu tests, meaning you are going to miss cases of the flu, a real flu, because the test will come back negative even though you have symptoms. But when it's positive, it's helpful. The problem that we have this year is that the people doing these, you know, taking the specimens and running these rapid tests, we have to be careful not to put them at risk from taking so many specimens and then manipulating them through different tests. You know, when you go through a drive-through with COVID for COVID testing, you get swabbed, it gets put in a bag, it goes to a lab, and that's all that the employee does. Okay? But if you're asking them to take a couple of specimens, to put one in one medium, to run it through a machine, all of those are increased opportunities to put those employees at risk. And so at least where I work, we've made the decision um, not to do rapid flu testing. And we're being very judicious about when we order uh, a flu test at all. Because most cases of the flu, once you've ruled out COVID, you can you can do what's called a presumptive diagnosis. If they have, if it fits the flu, especially if they tell you, hey, my wife has the flu and it was confirmed in her, you can use just that information without testing your patient for the flu and go ahead and give them Tamiflu or do whatever you think is necessary. So personally, I'm going to be reserving uh, flu testing um, because of, of these risks that I explained to uh, very specific cases where getting the flu test results is going to make a meaningful difference in how I I treat the patient, and this is likely to happen in those most vulnerable with those most vulnerable patients, where it may be critically important to know if they have the flu, COVID, or both. Excellent. Question about um, the longevity of antibodies in the in the system. How far back? How far back? You know, if you did an antibody test today, how far back is it gonna is it going to detect? You know, I will tell you that I've got a a, a, a friend from church who all of her family was severely sick back in January. One of her sons was in the ICU, intubated, double pneumonia, could never figure out what was, what was going on, right? They never, they never could figure it out. This was before we really knew what COVID was. And, and I kept, you know, we kept talking about this and she kept saying, you know what? I think we had, we all had COVID. And I said, well, Let's antibody test you. We, we've we've got the means to do that now. She came in last week and tested. We did an antibody test on her, and she was positive for the IgG long-term antibody. So uh, it 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 just you know anecdotally, she probably had it back then. Her family probably did have it back then. Uh, I mean, they said they felt like they were going to die, and could not breathe. Didn't want to get out of bed. One of her one of her youngest sons. Uh, like I said, had to be in ICU on a, on a ventilator, never could figure it out. Of course, everybody's visiting with no mask. I mean, we didn't know what was going on, but uh, it looks like the long-term the long antibody is going to stay for, for a long time. Is that right, George? Um, we think so. In many people, but not in, in everybody. So um, the duration of this, well, well first of all, 
we need to be careful not to confuse having antibody, and typically it's a specific type of antibody called the IgG, having a detectable antibody level, equating that with, with having immunity from the disease. It may, it may not, it, you, okay? But second, knowing how long that uh, IgG, that elevated antibody is going to last. We do know that in some cases it disappears. And actually I've, I've had employees who have had bona fide COVID who then joined an IgG uh, study that we have going on and they tested negative, even though we know that they were positive. Typically, and again, there's, there, there's, there's relatively little data so far, but it's accumulating. Um, it seems that people who had COVID with no symptoms or very mild symptoms are going to be the ones more likely to lose their antibodies down the road. People who have had severe disease and survived it appear to have longer lasting detectable antibody levels. But again, remember what I just said, detectable antibody levels may or may not mean that there is immunity. And I would say the converse is true as well. We don't know if losing, if you had a detectable antibody level, and then you repeat that test, let's say three months down the line, and it's disappeared, we don't know that that necessarily equates with losing any immunity you might have. There are certainly other disease, uh, other um, conditions like hepatitis B, and we mm -hmm. vaccinate for hepatitis B in, in healthcare workers all the time. We check there to see if they've got antibodies, which for hepatitis B is an indicator of immunity, uh, and they do, but over the years, they may lose it. And we know that even though they've lost it, if they were positive at one point in time, they probably still have ongoing immunity. We don't revaccinate them necessarily. That's a good point to make. Still, uh, a question came in about the the uh, the perm permanent lung damage from from COVID. Is it, what type of testing is being done to 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 determine the long term permanent lung damage? I mean. Are, we cat scanning people. How, how are we knowing what the long-term damage is? Yeah, I'm I'm seeing a few of these because you know my background is also in pulmonology, and so I am seeing some folks who have survived. Typically, these are people who have survived a hospital stay, COVID, but but they they did have a hospital stay. Some of them, not all of them, have were were even on ventilators. So what I'm seeing is that most of the ones that I have seen, you know, when I see them in the clinic. I typically will get a chest X-ray at a minimum. Sometimes I'll get a CAT scan, but especially I rely on breathing tests. I, I do pulmonary function tests, and the, one of the tests that I rely on is probably one of the cheapest. Anybody can do it. Uh, if they go to Walgreens and buy the, one of those little finger oximeters, it costs about 30 or 40 bucks, and I walk them up and down the hall at a fast pace for about six minutes, and I look and see if their oxygen level stays the same, which is what should normally happen, or whether it drops. And so if it drops, that's an abnormal response. That may mean that they have some ongoing, um, uh, you know, complicated, not, not complications, uh, long-term effects from the initial uh, disease. Now, remember that some people who were on ventilators, and this was even, I, I think I'm correct in saying this, I haven't seen the data, but, but just having viewed how our knowledge has evolved, early on we were putting lots of people on ventilators that you know nowadays we probably would try to avoid putting them on ventilators because there is a little bit of evidence that ventilators although when you when you need it you need it but it can also cause harm especially if you're administering very high levels of oxygen you can get a condition called ARDS adult respiratory distress syndrome which in about 50% of cases of those people who survive it they may be left with long-term scarring of the lungs we've known this for years because ARDS 
is a common outcome of many different types of respiratory infections, and so we know a lot about that. So I would say that people who have had ARDS with COVID are more likely to have long-term um, lung damage than people who didn't have it, survived it, even if it was in their lungs, um, are less likely to have it. But there's still, we, we still, let, I mean, again, we're only nine months into it. So the people I'm seeing now, at the most, let's see, were people who had it back in April or May. So I can tell you that as of people, you know, the ones that I'm seeing in September, so five months earlier had theirs, the majority are doing okay, but I don't know. Uh, and, and likewise, the people that I've seen that have a residual defect, have a residual defect or a problem, uh, long-term damage now, but I don't know if they'll have it two months from now or a year from now, they might be better. Um, you know, there was, there's, there was some, some changing of, of guidance by the CDC when in regards to getting repeat tests, mm -hmm. to repeat tests to show you're negative. And I, well, let's, let's assume we're talking about a PCR test. So the question was, you've got a husband and a wife who both test positive for COVID. The doctor says, come back and see me after 10 days, we'll repeat the test. Husband tests negative, the wife keeps testing positive. Should the husband stay home with the wife until she's negative or is he okay to go back to work? He should be okay to go back to work as long as he doesn't have a fever. He has, he, his symptoms are resolved or at least are a lot better and at least 10 days have elapsed since the start of his symptoms. Um, you know, again, what we were saying before about immunity, we don't know how long immunity lasts. I personally think, and actually I think Dr. Fauci agrees, the, the famous Dr. Fauci, that anybody who has had a COVID infection is probably, uh, probably 100% of them develop some type of immunity. We just don't know how long it lasts. So they may be protected from future exposures for a good long while, and maybe over time they lose that and then they're susceptible to what's called a reinfection, which is very rare, but, but we need to keep an eye out on that. I've stopped doing testing uh, for return to work uh, or anything like that. Um, I just go by the symptom base because we were having problems with people who we knew had recovered from their illness, but they kept testing positive sometimes as long as three, four months after um, their original infection, and yet they were fine. And we now know that it, that has to do with the sensitivity of the test that is used, the PCR test, because it's detecting viral fragments that, that probably, that are not infectious. Okay, and that's now been well, uh, well studied. And so, you know, keeping somebody away from work three, four months, I mean, when, they, when there was no need for that, uh, mm -hmm. really takes a toll on employers as well as on the employees themselves. Right. So I've yeah. stopped testing. And CDC, uh, if you look at their guidelines, they, they recommend don't repeat test within right. the first three months after right. you've had an infection. They don't tell us what to do the fourth month. And we're, by the way, now we're getting into the fourth month for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Um, a question or a comment was about uh, vitamin levels and, and uh, severity of symptoms. Um, are you up to date on anything of vitamins, vitamin D levels? Only I've seen some studies that low vitamin D levels may be associated with a worse outcome. And so the, if, if you have low vitamin D levels, frankly, if you have very low vitamin D levels, regardless of COVID, you would probably want to normalize them anyway. That's what we do clinically. Right. Vitamin D, we're learning interesting, we've known about vitamin D for many, many years, but we're still learning about all of the different uh, roles that vitamin D plays in the body. And there might be a role here, um, not so much that taking vitamin D 
protects you from COVID or its severity, but the fact that people with low vitamin D levels might be more susceptible to some of the uh, complications or the severity of illness. A uh, question was, uh, who calculates the reproduction rates for the flu and COVID? Where does that data come from? So um, it's it's based on large data sets. Most of the data, I would say, come from state health departments. So here at the School of Public Health, and I mentioned this on previous webinars, our colleagues in the biostatistics and epidemiology departments uh, have uh, developed a fantastic website. Um, if, if you're in Texas, it's called www.texaspandemic.org, all one word, Texas Pandemic, and it's free, obviously. Um, and they uh, they actually take the analysis of the data a bit further than Johns Hopkins, which has done a fantastic job. But I think these guys take, um, you know, do even more detailed analysis. And one of the things that they do is that they plot the R naught value, the reproduction rate. And it's they base most of their data from state health departments. So I don't know what the calculation is, but I, I can see how it would be easy to calculate based on daily change in rates, existing infections and daily change in rates. You can probably calculate it. It's 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 a formula, but the data will come predominantly, I would think, from state health departments or, or local health departments uh, as well. Uh, a question was on the the dose the dosing of the uh, the Tamiflu prophylaxis versus treatment. It is a little different. Can you know know it offhand? Yeah, once for five days, once for ten days. I think uh, I could look it up while you're talking about something else. <laughs> yeah, I always have to look it up every year. Yeah, me as well. It is. You're right. It's different for treatment than it is for prophylaxis. I'll look it up while while you're mm -hmm. doing. Uh, while, uh, find a question for yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so I think we talked a little bit about it, but it, the recommendation to wait a little bit later this year for the flu shot late October, uh, the, 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 the question that says late October, early November, but I, 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 you're supposed to get it this year before the end of October. Is that right, George? Ideally before October 31st. Yes. Yeah. And so thank before, you before Halloween and that and that's just to you know make sure you that timeline is so you don't get it too early but you don't get it too late it kind of pinpoints a, a good cutoff by the time you should have it because remember it takes you know at least a couple of weeks to to build up that immunity you got the answer George I do so yeah it was five and ten I, I couldn't remember those so Tamiflu uh, is a 75 milligram tablet or capsule capsule I think and if you have the flu it's important that you start it the sooner the better, certainly within the first 48 hours of onset of symptoms, and then you take it twice a day for five days. If you're around somebody who has the flu and you wanna prevent it, you take it once a day, but for 10 days. Mm -hmm. So there's a trade-off. You get two a day for five days to treat it or one a day for 10 days to prevent it. Got it. A, a good question is this, uh, the, the attendee asks, why is the recommendation to test around that fifth day period from when you think you were exposed, if you still have to quarantine for 14 days because, you know, you, you may be test, uh, you know, you may get sick 14 days later, why not just either test and, and know it's negative and, and re release you from quarantine or just say, you know, or, or test you throughout the 14 days? Is there any rhyme or reason to that? Yes. Um, so for the general 
population, the general community, people who are not involved in as first responders or healthcare, um, you know, we typically will send them home for 14 days. And, 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 and in many cases, that's it. You may not even need to test, okay? Um, the whole thing about day five really occurs with um, people who don't have symptoms but have been exposed. When we look at the data of somebody who's been exposed, and, and it's been a, a known, a confirmed exposure to somebody who has definite disease, symptoms start, I mean, they can appear, as you said, as early as day two, but they typically, the majority of them start appearing at about day five. Most symptoms will appear between days five and eight, but can, may not appear until as far out as 12, 12 days, maybe even 14. That's the whole rationale for the 14 days. So, you know, if somebody has symptoms on day two, I don't wait until day five. I test them right then and there. But if they're asymptomatic, we test them at day five because most of the cases will start becoming positive by then. If it is negative, it's no guarantee that they won't become positive three days later, right? It's just you're you're hitting them at the at the inflection point where um, a positive test is is beginning to be really likely if in fact you have the infection. For somebody who is at home at 14 for 14 days and they're going to stay at home for 14 days, that is um, that's really not even necessary to test them. But remember that we had a severe shortage of healthcare workers. New York showed that amply, and people, hospitals had huge numbers of employees who were waiting at home to know if they, since they had been exposed through the course of their work many times, um, they were waiting at home for 14 days. You multiply 14 days times hundreds of employees in some of these hospitals at any given point in time, and you've got a staffing shortage. So, what what was recommended said okay well let's see if we can find a way to safely return them a little bit earlier but um but still you know not put people at risk and so that's where the testing at day five comes in we do it in hospitals if people have had a um you know have no symptoms or they've had a known exposure we wait until day five to test them if they have no symptoms they have, if they've developed symptoms before that we'll test them whenever they have symptoms and at day five, if they still, uh, if they are negative, we'll let them go back to work as long as two things are met. They are, there is strict adherence to wearing PPE at all times and safe practices and hand washing. We really, we instill it in everybody, but especially in these folks. And number two, should they develop any symptoms after day five, they get pulled off the job and they get retested at that point. So it was a measure and that helped a lot because it shortened 14 days to five days, and it helped with the staff shortages, which in some states were terrible, very mm -hmm. severe. There was a, a follow-up question to our husband and wife scenario about, well, why can't the wife go back to work? And uh, I think she probably could, you know, as long as it's been that full 10 days, she doesn't have symptoms. Uh, you know, she's kind of caught herself up with with repeat testing. So her employer may say, well, now we know you've got, you're still positive. We don't want you to come back. but I think medically she's she's able to to go back to work with her husband as well. Absolutely. And and I think it's our role as healthcare providers to educate employers about that because there are still I think it's it's less and less uh some employers are still requiring negative tests after a confirmed infection to come back and whenever I get the chance I try to dissuade them from doing that. I try to to convince them to go the symptom based route that doesn't require testing after day 10. Uh let's see here. So do we have any any updated research on 
the efficacy of the the neck gaiters versus other types of facial coverings? I don't know about updated research. I mean, everything I've heard about the gaiters is that it is the least desirable form of right. facial covering. Um, you know, certainly less than a mask, certainly less than a surgical mask. And we don't even want to talk about N95s, which offer the highest level of protection. Um, yeah, I think a, a, a lot of companies won't allow, that's my impression. Certainly we don't allow them in hospitals. We don't allow bandanas. We don't allow uh, gaiters. We do allow cloth coverings on uh, visitors. Uh, when there are visitors, we don't allow them on our employees. They have to wear a surgical mask, a bona fide surgical mask, mm -hmm. which offers greater protection than, than the cloth masks. But gaiters, we're not accepting them, at least in the hospitals that I have a a relationship with and my understanding is that many employers don't accept gators either yeah um a question was on age groups for the covid19 uh vaccine I, I haven't read anything about who they're testing it on or what mm -hmm. age groups are going to be uh, uh allowed to, to have it have you yeah well so uh like the moderna trial thirty thousand people they have to recruit 30,000 people into the, into the study, right? And, and they've been recruiting people. I mean, people are donating themselves, their, their time to the vaccine, but they have to meet, they have to make sure that the sample is widely representative of the U.S. population. And they have been having trouble recruiting certain groups. And, and it's not necessarily age-based. I know that there's an age limit. I don't remember what Moderna is. But I know they've been having, for example, trouble recruiting minorities. And it's especially important to recruit minorities, Hispanics and African-Americans in these studies because we know that they are at greater risk, both of developing the disease and of having severe out, uh, bad outcomes from the disease. Um, about a couple of weeks ago, I, I heard something. They were still having trouble enrolling these folks. Um, age groups, uh, I'd have to look at the criteria. Um, but remember, you want to give the vaccine in, in people who don't have COVID. That doesn't mean they can't have underlying diseases, but people who don't have COVID, I'll, I'll, I'll look it up. And maybe when, when we respond back to the questions that we don't have a chance to cover, we can add that, Tommy, to the, to sure. the answer. Uh, let's see, is there still a need for a vaccine if you have tested positive for COVID and recovered? Don't know. We don't know. You know, uh, I, and it's the first time somebody's asked that. I think it's an excellent question, and I think it's even more important that it be asked now rather than three months ago when we knew yeah. even less. So, yeah, I will say anecdotally, you know, we've I've had patients that we know had COVID, had had pretty yeah moderate symptoms, they recovered. We've tested them routinely over the past six months. And have never shown antibodies uh, to that. So, what does that mean? We probably still don't know yet. But right. uh, you know, some people will get this get this virus reco recover and probably still not have immunity at all uh, for whatever reason. So, so that raises the question: the very interesting and I think important uh, issue of reinfection. Is it possible? A month ago, well, let's say six weeks ago, just to be safe. On one of our webinars, we were asking, they were literally, there were zero cases reported worldwide. There were millions of cases of COVID worldwide, but zero cases of reinfection. And so uh, we thought that it would be unlikely. That was nice because it suggested immunity, right? Mm -hmm. But then in the last three or four weeks, a few reports, a few well-done reports 
um, out of uh, Hong Kong, there were Belgium, and then there was a case in Nevada in the U.S. Um, of reinfect of true reinfection occurred, and so I began to worry a little bit about that because on the one hand we've been saying all this time you know reinfection is is not happening, and now we see a handful of cases. Then I I wonder well why are we seeing a handful now? Because the interesting thing is they were all reported even though in different countries they were reported more or less at a similar time period within about a two week period, and I said uh oh maybe now that we're in month number whatever seven of the of the pandemic now we're going to start seeing reinfections true reinfections arise because whatever immunity was there has been lost um so i think we need to keep our eyes out for reinfection uh, i'm not ruling it out it's just incredibly difficult to diagnose in these uh, case reports they did stuff that to, to make sure that it was a reinfection to, to prove it that is not typically available in most hospitals. So the reason they were able to say it was reinfected is because they did special gene st genetic studies, genome studies, and they saw that even though it was the COVID virus in both cases, it was a different strain, or there were differences in the genetic makeup of the two uh, viruses. Um, you know, typically hospitals don't have that type of, uh, of test available for their patients. So clinically, it's one of the things I worry about because as I, as I was anticipating, I'm getting more and more of these questions where somebody had COVID confirmed back in June, they went back to work, maybe it was at a time when we were even testing people, uh, to have, they had to be negative to come back to work, they came back to work, now they've had another exposure four months down the line, and they're asking, what do we do? If I test them and they're positive, I don't know what that means. It may be that they're one of these persistent positives that are not contagious that we were talking about before, or maybe it's a true reinfection. So, um, and and they don't have any symptoms. So, you know, my my recommendation changes almost day by day as we get more and more of these, uh, and I'm looking for more guidance. And it's not out there yet. So, typically, what I'm doing is if it's within the first three months after they had their infection, I don't test them. If they get re-exposed. And they're not having symptoms. I don't test them. I let them work. With everybody's wearing full PPE in the hospitals anyway. Um, and should they develop symptoms, I'm thinking I'll test them at that point. Yeah. But this is just my approach. It may change next week. Uh, so talking about different scenarios in, in testing for the flu and COVID, it, you know, if it, if an employee comes in and you and he's got signs and symptoms, right, of both. You're testing for the flu first for whatever reason and they test positive for the flu and and let's assume they you 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 don't have the means to test them for covid or they don't want to get a covid test so they've tested positive for the flu the question is should they be allowed to go back to work after the flu symptoms have stopped or do they need to be quarantined for the full 14 days because you're assuming they may also have covid yeah that's, that's a tough one. I mean, I think you have to go clinically, yeah. right? If they have absolutely no reason to believe that they were exposed to COVID, there was nobody in their family, nobody reported having been positive that they were exposed to, et cetera. And the course of the flu follows the typical course of the flu, yeah. which is the one that you said, you know, abrupt onset, and then they get better completely within that time period. You know, I may be more inclined to say, okay, but um, actually, when faced with these cases, I would do just the opposite. I would test for COVID first, mm -hmm. 
and then I may or may not test for the flu. Yeah, it's a it's a tricky situation. Um, the question was, you know, are there any advantages or disadvantages to testing employees on on site at their job versus sending them all to to a doctor's office? Uh, I'll I'll just give you my opinion. Is it really doesn't matter? You know, we we do it both ways. Employees get sent here, we test them. We also go out on site and test people. Uh, so I think it just depends on on what what you want to do and if it's easier for us to come to you or a doctor to come to you and test 30 people versus sending them off site to go get tested I mean there it really there, no rhyme or reason or, or, or negatives or positives to either one yeah the only thing I would add to that though Tommy is that whoever's doing the testing make sure they know what they're doing so yeah. you just said you go out to employers but it's you your team that's going out there. it's not right. somebody the employers that is you know, gathering saliva or, you know, swabbing people, uh, because there is a real chance of exposing the worker right. who's obtaining the specimen unnecessarily. So right. whoever gets this, whoever does the testing needs to know what they're doing and to do it in a way that that they are protected and protect others. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I interpreted the question as a doctor's office was going to come out, but it's a good point. I mean, you don't want the the secretary swabbing somebody for COVID, probably not the best uh, situation. Uh, the age cutoff for the, the baby's age cutoff for a flu shot is it six months still? Six months. Six, six months, months and above get a flu shot. Yep. Uh, there was a, a good question by one of our uh, National Safety Council colleagues in Chicago uh, asking about a, a, an, an order of uh, uh, prevention methods. And I, what I'm going to, it's a lot of them. So what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to, we'll answer that in the, in the spreadsheet that we send out because it's a long list of things. And, and he's asking us to put it in order of priority or, or importance. So it's a great question, uh, but I, I think it'll be easier if we just spell it out for everybody. Um, if, if somebody does get reinfected, is it, is it, does it appear to be that it means the virus has changed? Uh, we don't know. I mean, in the cases that those four cases that I was talking about earlier, in three of them, well, I mean, in all of them, I think they they proved that it was a different. It was a different virus. It was. It's still COVID. Uh, you know, SARS-CoV-2, the virus. It was just. It had a slightly different genetic makeup, to um, just to prove that it was. It was not the same virus that originally infected the person. Okay, um, so lost my train of thought there. Uh, yeah, so reinfection can happen with it with with a different virus from a different exposure. I guess that's the, the easiest way to say. So in both cases, in all the cases that I know, it was a um, there was a confirmed new exposure that led to the case. It wasn't that somebody had it had an exposure, developed the disease, and then three months later develop the disease again without any known re-exposures. In all the cases, there was a re-exposure. And then three of the four cases, they were very promising because the reinfections were much milder than the first time around. However, the one case in the US, in Nevada, was sicker than the first time around. So I guess all bets are off on that one, too. Well, uh, you know, I know we've we've reached our time limit here, and we actually did a great job of of uh, you guys did a great job of sending in questions. We answered looks like all, but maybe three, 
So um, I think what we'll do is end it here and we're gonna answer those last remaining couple of questions in the spreadsheet that we send out. So you're gonna get a link to the video of this, the recording, as well as the spreadsheet with any unanswered questions. That way you'll have all the answers to, uh, to everything that you ask. So we appreciate it again. I think we had around 200 people on the webinar today, which is a great turnout. And you know, if any other topics come up or, or you want any more topics to be uh, presented, feel free to ask us and, and we'll do our best to, to make sure that we can uh, provide you with some education. We appreciate it, everybody. Thank you, have a good, safe uh, week, happy fall, and go get your flu shot. Thank you, please do.